If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this June 11, 2018. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about virtually every element of the news. From a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down, usually in hour number two, we like to do an interview or two. This week's podcast is going to be a little bit different because I have for a very long time made a blanket offer with regard to the entire Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky saga, where I have said I will debate anyone, anytime, anyplace. Pretty confident that no one was really going to take me up on the offer, not that I didn't want them to, it's just I didn't think anybody would have the guts to do it because, frankly, most of my critics have no clue about the real story. And even many of my critics will acknowledge that I know more about the story than anybody else on the planet. And so, therefore, most people just don't want to be bothered. They'll, they'd much rather just feel secure in believing what everyone else believes, which I believe to be a myth, much like Santa Claus. You know, so people, there's safety in numbers, and when people believe in, in something, and in, in like five-year-olds with Santa Claus, 97% of the population believes one thing, you think you must be right. Well, I was surprised recently when a guy by the name of Josh Webb Thompson, who is a writer, among other things, for Athlon Sports, on Twitter said, hey, I'll take you up on your offer, I'll debate you, I, I believe Jerry Sandusky is guilty of being a pedophile, and I said, okay, being a man of my word, sure, let's do it, and we mutually agreed that uh, today would be a good time on the podcast to do this, I don't know if we want to call it a debate, discussion, what have you, but I'm looking forward to whatever we call it. So, Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get into the, the subject matter, uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about uh, you and your interest in this case? It actually started back in college. I was pushing my thesis uh, at the time on the nonprofit system in the BCS, when the Jerry Sandusky case, the Penn State case, kind of caught storm. And, and what originally attracted me to the case, if I'm being dead honest, were the sanctions that they hit Penn State with, because they were so similar to what USC was hit with over the Reggie Bush, Todd McNair, but we're talking about something massively different. Um, and I, I got sucked into the case reading the grand jury indictments, uh, writing reports for my class on it. And uh, I've just kind of followed it a little since then. And I you know I thought, hey, if nothing else, like you said, logical discussion is far better than people 
coming at you on the internet saying, hey, you're an idiot. You know, I, I just, I don't see how that moves any sort of discussion. So my main hope here is that I'm one of those critics who will acknowledge, you know, way more than me, but I'm hoping to drive discussion. And if people get anything out of it, fantastic. Well, good. All right. Um, now, I've read a little bit about what, what you did write uh, about the, the case. And is it a fair assessment that for the most part, and you've already kind of acknowledged it, saying you were interested in the sanctions, the, there were so many different aspects to the story that you pretty much just accepted the idea that Jerry Sandusky was guilty. And then on that premise, everything else was built. Is that a, is that a fair assessment on, on how you... Yeah, I would say that's fair. Like everyone else, you, when you get caught up and you hear, much like with the Harvey Weinstein thing, when there's so many accusers, right. you start to think to yourself, how can this dude not be guilty? So yeah, right. I would say that was completely fair assessment. Right. And, and by the way, I was in that category. Uh, although I wasn't 100% sure, and there were some things right off the bat that made me think, well, wait a minute, is, could this be exaggerated? I accepted his guilt from the very beginning. And then I know you know a little bit about how I got involved in this, uh, and apparently you've read some of the things that I, I've written and done on this. I, I very slowly but surely started to realize that everything that I thought I knew not only wasn't true, that it was most likely the opposite of true. And so I was right there with you. And, and frankly, uh, to be you know very honest about it, Josh, I, I think that that's the biggest problem in this case is that because there were so many different aspects, the NCAA sanctions, the Paterno legacy, the administrator's trial that distracted people, that it was very easy for people to just accept the underlying crimes that already existed before they were ever proven. Do you, do you see that as possible? Yeah, completely. How can you not? Especially when you're talking about Graham Spann, you're getting fired. Then you've got Tim Curley and then another administrator uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but I know I've read it about 2,000 times. In, in Gary, Sh Gary Schultz. That's right, Schultz. Um, he, he got caught up in this. They both had to serve time uh, or were sentenced to time. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I don't, when you see the magnitude of all of that, I think it is very easy for people to look at the combination of all of those things and say, this dude, without a doubt, is guilty. Whether you're me, whether you're someone else, whether it's you, I can easily see how someone would come to that conclusion logically. And that's, in my view, the, one of the many keys for how and why this happened the way that it did. Everyone just accepted that and moved on to other things. Because let's face it, the, the crimes alleged are icky as hell. No one wants to think about them, uh, especially uh, straight men. That, that, that's the last thing they want to think about is sex between a, an older man and a teenage boy. Uh, and, and also, let's also face it, we're living in a world where no one wants to be seen as even remotely defending a pedophile. It's the worst crime imaginable. It's it, frankly much worse in most people's minds than murder is. And so when there are other elements of the story that are immediately, and I'm talking immediately within hours or at least a couple of days of Jerry Sandusky's arrest, which take the focus away and then, by the way, create effectively a forward momentum. In other words, uh, the firing of 
of Graham Spanier, the charging of Curly and Schultz, the firing of Joe Paterno, followed by the free report and the NCAA sanctions. All of that is piling on. It's like a snowball turning into an avalanche where we've still never discussed the underlying premise of the whole case, which is, is Jerry Sandusky guilty? So I'm curious, what do you make of, before we get into the details, what do you make of my theory that that's really what happened here? Well, you know, the thing that, that, and I was talking to my wife about this, the thing that stuns me is going back to somebody like Harvey Weinstein. You've got Ben Brassman, Lisa Bloom, so on, coming to this dude's defense, and that scene is okay in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the magnitude of what Harvey Weinstein did, and this is a guy that's not even fighting back. He, he admitted that he had some inappropriate behavior, but that, that was never, like, the public never, they never cared. You know, Lisa Bloom caught some flack, but beyond that, then you go back and you look at the research you did on this case. You talk about the attorneys that, or the attorney that defended Jerry Sandusky and yourself following this case, you, you, you flat out said that you regret ever getting involved. Right. Um, I do. It's done you no favors professionally and personally. Right. And for the, his, his attorney, it nuked his career. Right. And so that's so, somewhat astonishing to well, me that. Right. And, this, and, no, no, and, and just not to interrupt you, Josh, but just to put a fine point on it, it's only in that kind of environment with that kind of toxicity where this level of injustice can happen. Do you acknowledge that? Do you acknowledge that yeah. all that all the elements are there for an injustice of this magnitude to occur? Do you acknowledge that? Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I, I do think that the way that everything came together so quickly and so forcefully, I can easily see how details got missed, things got misconstrued, things were flat out lies so on and so forth there's just there's just enough there for me to say okay i'm ready to talk about this if nothing else fill me in all right well so then let me get to the the most obvious question why do you believe jerry sandusky is guilty of being a pedophile there are a couple things first off there i now i know that they chased down per your report they they knocked on over 300 doors trying to get people and there was one person who was a plant um but but beyond that you you had accusers that started to culminate and there i i will admit to being sucked in by victim number two okay first and foremost i'm going to admit to that because i'm an honest person so victim number two was a big reason why I thought Jerry Sandusky was well, guilty. Uh, well, hold on a second. Just to be clear, you're, you're referring to the, the victim. Only in the, known to God. Right. Person okay. That was in the shower with Mike McQuarrie. Right. Now, now that, that's confusing to me because to me, <laughs> to me, I look at victim number two, who I know to be Alan Myers. Right. I, I, I believe that he is the key to the whole case, but in the opposite direction. So tell me. Tell me why you think that Alan Meyer's story proves Jerry Sandusky's guilt. Well, he was sort of the catalyst for it. No, I no, think, I think I, you're I think you're a little confused uh, because because you know, Alan Myers never said anything about Jerry Sandusky ever being remotely a pedophile until well after Jerry Sandusky was already convicted. So I, I think you might be mixing up Aaron Fisher, who is victim number one, and the Mike McQuarey story, which is the story involving a victim number two who is Alan Myers. Is, is that possible, Josh? That, that could be possible, yes. There, there is so much going on in this case that I've learned in the last week that it is 
easily possible for me to be a little bit confused at this moment. Okay, so so let's so well tell me so so I can figure out which one you're talking about. Tell <laughs> tell tell me about why that particular victim story compelled you to come to the conclusion that Jerry Sandusky is is guilty of being a pedophile. Well, again, it was more the catalyst for it. That was the story that sucked me in. And then there were the, the, the compounding, it, it started at somewhere in the 30s and then ended up at about 48, 45 out of the 48 counts that he was convicted on. So there were a multitude of things that kind of sucked me into his guilt. And when I was listening to your interview with him, the one thing that I've never been able to get over was you flat asked him, Jerry, how do you respond to the idea that these people are accusing you? And he didn't have an answer. And I'm not saying he has to have one. I'm just saying he didn't have one. And I found that odd. Oh, I will be the first. I will be the first to acknowledge, Josh, that Jerry Sandusky has done himself no favors in hardly any of the interviews that he's done. Although I will I will also say that in the three and a half hours of taped or about three hours of taped interviews that I've done with him. Uh, he did say some very compelling things and I've yet to ever find them in a lie, which is amazing because I wish I would have, because if I had, I would have washed my hands of this whole case. And, and trust me, I spent a long time trying to find him uh, in a lie. Uh, but I think we're, we're in danger here of, of getting off on two different tracks. So I want to try to keep this, this focused. You seem to be very convinced by, by two different things, both the totality of all the number of accusers, and then one particular accuser who I'm, I'm still not sure if we're talking about Aaron Fisher or, or about Alan Myers. Just to, be, just to refresh your recollection, Alan, Aaron Fisher is the person who first came forward to say that he, Jerry Sandusky uh, might have done something to him sexually. Uh, he was the only accuser for the first two years of this investigation. And that is who I am definitely thinking of. And I know Alan Myers, was, he was a Marine who didn't, he didn't change his story until well after. And then he received, what was it, 6.9, Correct. I think, out Six, of the whole deal? $6.9 million. And, yeah. and to me, uh, anybody that believes... Uh, that my version of Alan Meyer's story, which is that he was the biggest defender of Jerry Sandusky until it was clear Jerry Sandusky was being sold down the river and that he wanted to cash out and that he, in, in fact, did that with his lawyer, Andrew Shubin, on whom I know they're uh, intimately involved in a sting operation that has exposed Aaron Shubin as a complete fraud. Uh, anybody that does not believe my version, I always ask, okay, so do you believe Stormy Daniels had an affair with Donald Trump? Because Stormy Daniels' story evolved exactly the same way as Alan Myers. Truth, 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 truth. Payment, lie, lie, lie. Then, now with the Stormy Daniels, we have a different chapter that Alan Myers unfortunately hasn't gotten to yet because she decided to tell the truth again. Uh, Alan Myers hasn't gotten there yet, mainly because she only got $130,000. He got $6.9 million. So, and obviously there are other different components in the two different cases with regard to social pressure. But uh, I am quite certain that if you look at Alan Meyer's full story, he exonerates Jerry Sandusky, which he did in his statement to Joe Amendola, the defense attorney for Jerry Sandusky, on the day that Joe Paterno was fired. Alan Meyer said, Mike McQuarrie is not telling the truth. I was there that night. I remember it well. Uh, Let me ask you while while we're on that subject, why do you not believe Alan Myers, or do you believe Alan Myers when he said— I actually do believe Alan Myers. 
I think if it's possible, you can have people telling the truth in this case, and you can have people lying in this case. Sure. I absolutely believe that. Okay, possible. so do you believe so? So. <laughs> Before we get to Aaron Fisher, since the, I look at this case as there's really basically two pillars of this case. The Mike McQueary story, which clearly involves Alan Myers as the so-called victim number two, and Aaron Fisher, who was the first victim in this case, known as victim number one. Those are the two pillars. If one of those pillars disintegrates, the case is in big trouble. If both do, the case is over because there is no case because everything falls after that. Uh, so do you believe that Mike McQuarrie saw Jerry Sandusky sexually abusing a boy in the shower that night? Here's where I have an issue, because Mike McQuarrie's story has changed. And like the investigator said um, in, in your report, usually when people see this type of stuff, in his experience, he said, he's never had a person see a rape, see something like child porn and and or or anything of the sort and and misremember you, you just don't see that um you're talking about john but, Snedden, the ncis but, agent who investigated the case uh, for the federal government while trying to renew uh, graham spanier's uh, uh security, security clearance, clearance yeah. for the federal government yes okay yeah. so and and i've gotten to know john very well and john believes uh, with virtual certitude. He was the one that wrote there is no evidence across the top of that that uh, report, the very first paper you see on your Newsweek article, correct? Uh, no. Uh, the, <laughs> you're referring to the first page of the work product of the free report. Free which, report, yeah. Which, which I was leaked, or actually Ralph Cipriano was leaked, and then he gave it to me, uh, and I released it at framingpaterno.com. It's an extraordinary piece of paper where the first page of the work product of the free report, over the very top, it says, no evidence of this, exclamation point in capital letters. Uh, that's written by someone from the free group. But that's a completely different issue. I want to stay focused here uh, on, let's start with McQuarrie and, and Aaron Fisher. So you have questions about why McQuarrie's story has changed. Do you do you believe, do you believe that Alan Myers was sexually abused in the shower that night? I do, but I am willing to listen to any sort of evidence that exonerates or any sort of evidence that can be presented to me that wipes this out. I, I, All right, well, let me try. I genuinely believe that, that something happened. When okay. you say sexual assault, that's, that's the that's the question, isn't it? You right. know, it, because that's what Mike McQuarrie alleged. Right. Then his story changed, and then he specifically said, "I never saw anal insertion. I never saw right. penetration." Right. And, and so Mike McQuarrie, you, you know, to follow Mike McQuarrie is a bit of a task because he's a little bit all over the map. Right. With his story. All right. So let's um, let me give it a shot, then, Josh. Since you okay. said you're open to being convinced that McQuarrie did not see a sexual assault. Let me, let me explain why I'm 100% convinced that he did not. Uh, the first is very simple. I, I would like you to consider that Mike McQuarrie is a six foot four, 225, 30 pound guy. In his, he's the same uh, as me. <laughs> uh, he's in his, in his late uh, 20s. He's in tremendous physical uh, shape. And he comes in and for two or three seconds, by his own testimony, through a, a mirror in a shower, he allegedly sees Jerry Sandusky doing something, although he's never been specific about it. And I've always wondered, 
you know, there's only certain, there's only a certain number. There's a finite number of sex acts that are possible uh, between a ma- between two males, uh, and he's never defined what it was that he supposedly saw. He just said it was extremely sexual at some point later down the road. Noises, I believe right, he's referring right, to. Right. Right. So, so, I, but okay, fine, whatever. You don't want to, you know, you don't, you don't want to get into the the graphic details and you you've said you didn't see insertion and by the way he told franco harris nfl hall of famer uh to mo- to whom i've gotten very close and, he, and i played this clip in my movie the framing of joe paterno that that he saw no erection from jerry sandusky he saw no uh sodomy no intercourse uh, and franco left that conversation 10 years after it happened convinced totally that there was no sexual assault and you know franco's a pretty credible guy but but let's let's just evaluate what mike does so what guy who by the way has quarterbacked college football games on national television in front of crowds of 100,000 people not a guy prone to panic right the first yep. the first c- concern is you leave without doing or saying anything. That's your yeah, story. that's a huge problem for me. I'm going to admit straight off the bat, that's a huge problem for me. Because right. I don't have to imagine Mike McQuarrie at 6'4". That's how tall I am. Right. I weigh actually a little bit more than Mike McQuarrie. I'm around 250. Right. And if I had seen and or heard anything like that, look, I am in nowhere close to the shape that Mike McQuarrie is. I don't drink, but I'm a pretty lazy dude. <laughs> I don't smoke. But I would have run in there and broken it up. So, yes, yes, that, that right. is a... And, that's where I have an issue. That's and and most issue. people do have an issue there, but they misinterpret that issue. They think that Mike was somehow being a coward. Mike wasn't being a coward. Mike didn't panic. Mike didn't see anything that was all that horrendous. He was surprised by it, and I have no problem with him being surprised, maybe even extremely uncomfortable. It's a Older man and a teenage boy, a naked in a shower on a Friday night that you're not expecting anyone to see there. I believe strongly that Mike hearing slapping sounds, with both, which both Jerry and Alan have said in slightly different versions of the story, but in the essence that they were playing some sort of a game involving uh, towel slapping, that, that that facilitated a situation where Mike went into the shower area expecting to see sex between a man and a woman. And when he sees a boy and a man, it shocks him. Understandable. I totally get it. But it is completely inconsistent with him having seen something of a sexual nature for him to do nothing, say nothing, allow the boy to stay there, and then he doesn't call the police. He goes to his dad and a Dr. Dranoff, and he tells them the story. Neither of them tell him to go to the police. Both of them testify that he never said anything about a sex act. And then, and I believe very strongly that the timeline here that, that the, the public thinks is the truth is still way off. I've, since the beginning of this case, Josh, I have never been able to wrap my brain around how if anything close to what Mike McQuarrie is now saying happened, and as you've said, there's various versions of that. How does Mike, when asked about this 10 years later, get the wrong day, get the wrong month, and get the wrong year? This is by, by his own admission, okay? This is not in question. This is not John Ziegler. This is 100% 
fact. There is no possible way that if you experienced that and you saw a living legend seeing a boy being assaulted like that, that you would get the date that wrong. Does that not concern you? It does, but, and, and this is, this is where we're going to get into, I guess you could say, repressed memory therapy, and I'm not saying that I buy it. I would just like to offer up an example. I actually grew up in treatment homes, residential treatment centers, group homes, so on and so forth. <clears throat> I didn't have the best family situation. I also wasn't the most perfect kid. So uh, a multitude of things led to me being in the system as a ward of the court since I was three. Um, now, I had a best friend that I graduated, uh, Provo Canyon School, which you're free to look up sometime. It's, it's, it's Can so we get to the point course. of this story, Josh? You're getting yes, far here afield here. here. <laughs> My best friend, Ryan, graduated from there. Now, I know for a fact that Ryan endured abuse at Provo because I witnessed it. Okay. Now, there's not a lot you can do when you're in a residential treatment center, and it wasn't sexual abuse, but okay. it was abuse. All right. Now, I talked to Rohan about this when we reconnected on Facebook. Okay. He didn't remember a damn thing. I had to remind him about everything. And even when I reminded him of specific events, specific okay, but, people. But hold on a second. Mike wasn't the one being abused. No, I, I, you're right. You're so, right. So, that, the, so the analogy falls apart right away. I mean, the, the reality is that m this would have been a huge moment in Mike McQuarrie's life. Huge. And he gets the date, the month, and the year wrong. And I believe, and I don't know if you've read what I've written about this, I've sent it to you, but I believe even the second date he came up with is flat wrong. Because I think he waited five or six weeks from the time he saw this to the time he went to Joe Paterno. I think the facts line up perfectly from not just Mike's testimony, but what Jerry's story is, what Alan Meyer's story is, what Dr. Dranov's story is, it all meshes perfectly with the actual date not being uh, February 9th of 2001, as is currently in the public record, but actually December 29th of 2000. And that that five or six week period, that interlude between the event and Mike finally going to Joe Paterno on February 10th, which we know is the actual date of 2001, is huge because now there's absolutely positively no way to spin that one. You don't wait five or six weeks to tell your boss about a sexual assault. Uh, and I believe My, I, 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 a girl that I was really close to in college was raped and it took her. Mike's the not the months. victim, Josh. <laughs> Mike's not the victim here. Mike is not the victim. All right. And by the way, there's plenty of motivation for Mike to suddenly. It, do you not? Are you not concerned, troubled by the remarkable coincidence that a day and a half before Mike goes to see Joe Paterno, there just happens to be an open job at Penn State for the wide receivers coaching position when Kenny Jackson leaves Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers, a job that not only does Mike not get at the time, thus blowing up the whole cover-up theory, because that's the first thing that would have happened if there was a cover-up. Paterno would have said, thanks for coming to me. By the way, you're the new wide receivers coach. That doesn't happen. Mike gets the job, though, three years later. This is a guy who desperately needed and wanted a job. He was only a graduate assistant at the time. Does that coincidence... 
not concern you that the real reason that Mike McCreary went to go see Joe Paterno was not because he had seen a sexual assault, but because he needed an excuse to get FaceTime with Joe Paterno with an open job. That's, that, that is a leap to me because who is going to, I mean, uh, granted, man, I, I know about wanting and needing jobs as a journalist, but to come up with a story like No, no, that he didn't. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's not making it up. He's not making it up. He's using it. Okay, okay. He, he's using it. But if we're saying it didn't happen... No, 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 no. He never told Joe Paterno there was a sexual assault. And the reason why we know he never told Joe Paterno there was a sexual assault is because I have an email. I have an email from Sue Paterno, the widow of Joe Paterno, who was there that day, who by all accounts has an unbelievably good memory. I don't know if you've seen the email. It sounds like you have. She has described the email uh, the, the, in an email to a person directly involved in this case. That meeting took three minutes. Three minutes, ironically enough, while Joe Paterno was getting out of the shower. Now, Mike has exaggerated that meeting over the years to, to an extraordinary, absurd level. And he needs to. Why does he need to? Because that meeting is the only hard evidence that he saw anything of, of a horrible nature because that's him going to the great Joe Paterno. In three minutes, it is not physically possible <laughs> for, for someone to make a report of that magnitude. That is not possible. The, it, is even, it is only theoretically possible that Mike says to a very busy Joe Paterno, hey, coach, I just want to let you know, I saw Jerry last night in the showers. He was with a kid. It made me uncomfortable. I really think somebody needs to talk to him. That's what happened in three minutes. And that's the only scenario that makes any sense at all. And the reason – do you want to respond to that? Oh, no, I was, I was about to say that that – you know, coming in, you casually think you see something. I agree with that. It, it, it's not possible to sit down and have a detailed report about sexual assault. It, it's just not possible. It's, in three minutes. I hope it's, any logical person would agree that is not possible. It's not possible. By the way, it's not possible from either perspective. Because no, because, because Joe Paterno is not going to shoo Mike away in three minutes. It's, it's, it's just absurd. It's, but, but, here, but to me, Josh... All of this is, is at least somewhat speculative. It's informed speculation. It's logical speculation until we get to Alan Myers himself. And the story of Alan Myers, to me, ends any semblance of doubt about the McQuarrie story not being what we, are, what we are perceiving it to be, what the public perceives it to be, and what the jury thought that it was, although he did get acquitted, Jerry Sandusky did, on the worst count in the Mike McQuarrie episode. So they must have had some concerns about McQuarrie's testimony. But when you look at Alan Myers' story, and I don't know, again, how much of this you know, but Alan Myers, who you've already acknowledged was the boy in the shower, he was 13 years old at the time, which is different than what the prosecution tried to make it. They, the prosecution desperately tried to make everybody much younger because the, the, the male prosecutors know that post-puberty is a problem. It, 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 post-puberty is a huge problem, especially when you're dealing with all heterosexual boys. And all of these boys are heterosexual, and Alan is extremely heterosexual. He's a married Marine, or former Marine now. But here, here's what you have to deal with to believe that Alan Myers was, was sexually abused. That in 2011, after the, the existence of the grand jury comes out about Jerry in this Sarah Ganim article, Alan Myers allows his name 
as a Marine. He's a Marine at this time, and he's married. He allows his name to be put on to letters to the editor in at least two separate local papers, strongly defending Jerry Sandusky is the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Just before this time period, Alan Myers invites Jerry Sandusky and Dottie Sandusky to his wedding. He takes a photo with Jerry and him together in his Marine uniform at his wedding. That photo is used in the internet version of Jerry Sandusky's retirement letter from the Second Mile Charity, and his name is the only name used in the letter as an example of an exemplary Second Mile kid that he'll always remember from his his leadership of the Second Mile Charity, which, by the way, blows apart the notion that Jerry Sandusky is some sort of criminal mastermind because you don't put your number one victim <laughs> picture and name in the retirement letter from the Second Mile Charity if you're a pedophile. Uh, and then you have what happens after Jerry Sandusky gets arrested. Alan Myers on his own with his mother, again, as a married, now former Marine, comes into the office of Joe Amendola, Jerry Sandusky's, a defense attorney in the middle of a crap storm and provides an extraordinary lengthy and detailed statement saying, Mike McQuarrie is lying. I was there. Here's what I remember. Nothing ever happened that night or any other night. Jerry's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And oh, by the way, I got interviewed by police two months ago and I thought they were trying to get me to lie about Jerry. And I ended it saying, I will never say anything bad about Jerry Sandusky. Now, how in the world is any of that remotely consistent with a person who had been brutally, horribly sexually abused for a long period of time? I just don't see it. It doesn't seem remotely consistent, does it? Now, the problem that we're getting into here is that, and we have to bear in mind that it took until after Jerry Sandusky's conviction for Alan Myers to change his story. You know that. I'm acknowledging that fact. And seven, million, and $7 million. Right, and $7 million, which would do anybody quite well. Um, the, the, the part that I have a minor problem with is that Alan Myers says, and you quoted him, I will never say anything bad about Jerry Sandusky well, until you, I need money. Right, well, you missed the part and in the parentheses. Jerry Sandusky. Well, he never you have a guy. You had never anticipated he was going to get $7 million for it. Well, that would have been in, that would have been in parentheses after the statement. <laughs> You're right, but it does come back to people changing their story, flip-flopping. For money. And saying it didn't happen, okay. and it did happen. Do, do you believe... Do you really confusing do you, for the layperson. Hold on a second. Do you believe that Stormy Daniels had an affair with Donald Trump? An affair? No, I think they had sex, okay, and that's whatever. about the end. Okay, of it. all right, but but you but you so you do not believe the statement that the the uh, that Stormy Daniels gave to uh, Donald Trump's people, saying that she never had any sexual uh, contact with Donald Trump. You do, you you think that's a lie? No, right? no. Why? I mean, why push it this far? Why sign right, an NDA right, that right, pays you right. out one third? Exactly. I hundred percent. But what I'm saying is that there's a direct analogy we've made, a comparison we've made, that the Alan Myers evolution and the Stormy Daniels evolution are exceedingly similar. It's just that Stormy Daniels is one step ahead of where Alan True, Myers is. But I don't is. think Stormy Daniels went into it saying, you know, strongly defending Trump, saying Trump's this amazing. No, 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 no. no. You're, you're, you're mis- I'm never oh, Josh, lie hold, about hold, Trump. hold on Only a second. Did. Hold on. You're, first of all, you're. 
people need to understand when I say that the stories are similar, I'm talking about truth versus lie, not about okay, sex so versus no. non-sex. I thought uh, we were going no, with no, no, no. Because Stormy Dan, no, no, Stormy Daniels told her story. She, people forget she did an interview. I guess it was what In Touch magazine. I think it was. She back in 2011 or whatever. Extensive. In fact, the same year as Alan Myers gave his statement to to Joe Amendola. Stormy Daniels gave this extraordinarily detailed interview about the affair with Donald Trump, and then the interview got lost. Incredibly similar to what happened with Alan Myers. Then she wasn't getting paid. That's when she told the truth. Then, once she got paid $130,000 in the 2016 campaign, then she starts lying. That's the same thing that happened with Myers. The biggest difference is the social climate and the amount of money we're talking about. So, so to me... Josh, the, the McQuarrie story falls apart in, in virtually every way. His story doesn't make sense and is inconsistent. Nobody he talked to, not his dad, not Dr. Janoff, not Gary Schultz, not Tim Curley, nobody he spoke to says, yep, uh, Mike told us he saw a sexual assault back in 2000 and 2001. No, nobody says that. Nobody. Nobody. And so now... Frankly, to me, at that point, now you have an enormous burden of proof. I think the burden proof's on you, Josh, to show to show show me that something bad did happen. But now I got Alan Myers, and and when the prosecution is so desperate that you've already alluded to this, that they have to go to the jury and say, you might be wondering why it is we have no victim two to testify in this case, even though it's the most horrendous, most uh, uh, vilified, most publicized act of alleged child molestation in the history of the country, if not the world. And, you know, Penn State's looking to pay people lots of money. You would think it'd be pretty damn easy to find a victim here. This victim is known only to God. That was a lie. That was a lie yeah. that the prosecutor knew was a lie. And that's. And I want to say it right here. I believe that lie. I remember that statement. I believe I wrote including that statement. So I think there were a lot of people who believed that lie. Okay, but it, but you two. but you do acknowledge now that that was a lie, right? Yeah, I, I think that the evidence is there that that was a lie. I, okay, I, and if, if nothing if nothing else, it provides a completely contradictory account. And like you said, when coupled with victim number one, which were their two biggest cases, it does give cause for speculation, if not outright denial. Right. I can understand that. But I come back to, and, and, and you're right about Jerry. I, I think I wanted to make a point about Joe Amendola. I, I, I don't think Joe Amendola did Jerry any favors. Then again, I'm not sure Joe Amendola was prepared for the enormity of this case. Well, he was overwhelmed. I, but let's, let's, I don't want to get sidetracked. So, so yeah, I think we're trying to get sidetracked. Okay, yet. so you're, so McQuarrie and Myers, uh, it sounds to me like you don't have a strong belief in that. So let's, let's go to uh, Aaron Fisher, okay? Because Aaron Fisher is should be the only thing anyone talks about in this case, because he's victim number one. He was the only accuser for two years, and uh, there's and I stupidly one of the biggest mistakes I made in this case is that I always presumed that that Aaron Fisher must be telling the truth for like the first year or two. I was like, I'm not even going to look at Aaron Fisher because one, he has nothing to do with Penn State. Jerry was retired at that time. I was looking at the paternal angle. I was distracted like everybody else was. I just said, you know what? I'm not even going to bother with that. Uh, you know, I saw his 2020 interview with Chris Cuomo, and it seemed a little weird. 
And then when I went look back on it again, it's really weird. Have you ever seen that interview that he did with Chris Cuomo? I saw I saw bits and parts of it. I haven't okay. yet seen the whole thing, okay, but, but I, I have seen bits and parts. All right. Well, of it. I, I urge you, Josh, to read his whole book, which I did way too late, and, and watch that whole interview. And when you do, you realize that Aaron Fisher is not remotely credible. And if he's not credible, and if Mike McQuarrie's not credible, there's nothing left of this case. It crumbles to the ground because everything, literally everything, flows from either Aaron Fisher and or Mike McQuarrie. And and what did it for me, there were lots of things that did it for me with Aaron Fisher. (laughs) One, well, I could list a, a dozen things, but one, his mom agreed on his behalf for me to give him a lie detector test. And then the next day he bailed out of that. And then he posted a death threat against me on Facebook. Uh, He has never agreed to speak to me. Uh, He has never done extensive interviews other than that one with Chris Cuomo, which brings up enormous problems. His book is a total joke. There are things in that book that, if you know the case, are utterly preposterous. The entire book is a fairy tale. I, I think anyone who reads that book with a open mind, a knowledge of the case, looks at immediately goes, holy crap, Jerry Sandusky is innocent. One of the other things that really started to get me uh, thinking that Aaron has no credibility is that when the prosecutors, Frank Fina and Joe McGettigan, do their only interview nationally, maybe the only one, I've, the only one I'm ever really uh, aware of that they did together about this case, with Armin Gatayan, uh, for 60 minutes on Showtime, I guess it is. They actually abandoned Aaron Fisher. They never even mentioned his name or ref- referred to him. He was no longer even the star. They decided that the star of their case was victim number four. Well, when you have a case like this, where the word of the victims is everything, you've got no physical evidence, no pornography, no documentation, no audio clips, no DNA, no nothing. You got nothing except for the victim's word. And that requires, Josh, that victim one be your star. Because if the first guy who was the only guy that you had for two years and that you used to go to all these hundreds of other people that you've already referenced and say, hey, hey, Jerry Sandusky ever do anything bad to you, and that person ends up not being credible, well, it's garbage in, garbage out. Because the chances of Jerry Sandusky having sexually abused the other 35 guys who got paid money by Penn State when the first guy that they used to convince all the others that they were that they were victimized was lying, that's a flat zero right there. There is zero chance of that happening. And then finally, you know, when the when the prosecutors abandoned him, I'm like, wait a minute. This, this is, there's something really wrong here. And then as I got to know Aaron's family and got to know Aaron's friends and people started coming to me, I have had 13 people, Josh, 13, very close to Aaron Fisher from every aspect of his life, former girlfriends, former buddies at the time of the allegation, parents of buddies from the time of the allegation, people who were two women who were sponsoring or hosting a a rally on his behalf when his book came out. Uh, I'm talking about two aunts who are uh, pretty close aunts to him, but by marriage, 13 different people who have come forward in their own names. I didn't go to them. They came to me and went on the record 
either on audio tape, videotape, or via Facebook messaging, and they told me, each and every one of them, that they are sure that Aaron Fisher was never sexually abused by Jerry Sandusky. They did so against their self-interest, and in a case this toxic, Josh, a case this toxic for someone to say that about a person who is a multimillionaire is impossible for that many people to, to do that and for them not to be right. How do you respond to that? My, my issue with that is, is that I, I'm reasonably certain that if something ever happened to me, that there would be people who, who would say stuff about me. And I'm, I'm not sure all of it. No, 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 no. Whoa, 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 I'm coming through it right now. Hold on. These are, no, Josh, these, I want to make clear. These are not people saying, I don't like Aaron Fisher. He's a bad dude. No, I know. These, these are, these are people, some of them actually still like him. Some of them are still friends with him. The the two aunts are still, or at least one of the aunts still very much in his life, married to his, his uncle. I mean, so this is this is these they are basing their assessments on their interactions with him. By the way, at least four or five, maybe more of the thirteen are sex abuse victims themselves, and that's what convinced them. They're like, wait a minute, Aaron's not a sex abuse victim. Sarah, Aaron, is, Aaron is sex is a is a, a sex obsessed person himself, who by the way was not the naive little boy that the prosecution made him out to be. He was having sex at 13, 14 years old with lots of girls, exceedingly heterosexual, and there was no possible way he was engaging one hundred times. You know that's his testimony, right? One hundred episodes of oral sex. With Jerry Sandusky. 100! He never tells anybody about it? No one. And he's at the, and this is happening up to the time where he's 14, almost 15 years old. Although his, his time period, by the way, there are four different time periods he's given. that are Two of which are completely incompatible with one another. So his, he can't even keep his, his, his timeline straight. But there is no possible way that this guy who is a track athlete and a wrestler is allowing this old man to force him into oral sex a hundred times. Come on, Josh. I, I think, I think it, it is a bit much to always rely on the physicality of the person to overturn the act. I think that they're, and, and I'm speaking from, from my experience and the people that I know have been, have had sexual assault. It, it, to, to discount because they didn't necessarily come forward right away or because here's the rub with this. But, but Josh, everybody's they, story changes. Everything right. changes. Very much uh, so. Every, everyone's story changes. Even Jerry changes. Well, well Jerry whoa, whoa, doesn't whoa. have wait, an answer. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, okay, Jer- never whoa. mind. Jerry's doesn't change. You, you admittedly, three and a half interviews with Jerry. You tried to catch him in a lie, and his story never changed. Let me get that right. When I okay. say his story changed, I just meant... That, he, what he never did was provide adequate answers. I, that's what I. And let me explain. You know, and let me explain why that is. Because that was a big problem for me, huge problem for me, especially if, as I was trying to decide. All right, am I going to put my reputation on the line and put my life on the line, whatever career I have on the line to defend this guy? And it was the number one problem I had. And what I have come to understand is that the guy is incredibly naive. He's not very bright. He has no idea. It took him forever to wrap his mind around what was happening to him. 
I don't think to this day, although I think by now he finally gets it, but until it took years, even after his conviction, for him to fully comprehend what had occurred. He was telling Joe Amendola just before the trial, hey, can I just talk to these guys and sort this all out? This has got to be some sort of misunderstanding. And Joe was like, dude, you're in big, big trouble. Jerry is a horrible talker. I have no idea how he was a great defensive coordinator. It's it's baffling to me having coached football myself. Uh, but I think it might have been a, from a very different era of football. And uh, I don't think he could do it today, even if he was a younger man. And um, And the reality is that it was a perfect storm of circumstances. And one of those perfect storm elements, I actually think his lack of testosterone has a big part of this. It, it's a big part of this from the standpoint of whether he was capable of even doing what he was accused of. And I think it also plays a role in his reaction. This is an older guy with no testosterone, literally no balls, literally no testicles, which why is Aaron Fisher not mentioning this, Josh, by the way? Can you, can you, can you give me an answer yeah, to that? You, you would think that that would be a big identifying mark if somebody... Yeah, well, Aaron, Fisher, Aaron Fisher gave this guy uh, supposedly engaged in 100 acts of oral sex with an old man. Never once mentioned as he was trying to prove his case. I mean, for two years, for two years, he, he, his mother is screaming at people, you've got to arrest Jerry Sandusky. They never pull out the, oh, by the way, Jerry has no balls card? Seriously? You know why they didn't? You know why they didn't, Josh? Because Aaron never saw Jerry's balls. All right? That never happened. Because Jerry has no interest in sex. Jerry is an asexual person. He, which I've always believed since even before I knew about his medical records. (laughs) I'm just meeting him. I've spent an enormous amount of time with football coaches, high school, football, pro, college football coaches. I've coached. I've written a book about a high school football team. I, I have studied football coaches extensively. There, I've never met one like him. Never. He is as asexual a person as they get. He never smokes, never drank, never cursed, and uh, he never had a, a natural-born child of his own because I don't think he was physically capable of it. And I think, and part of, and all of that played into why he was completely unprepared for for why and how this was going to go down. To the moment Alan Myers took the stand in his appeal hearing in 2016, November of 2016, everybody knew. I knew it because I knew that he had brought some victim advocates for him to speak, so he didn't have to to face questions at a press conference. The moment I knew that, I knew there was no way Alan Myers is going to tell the truth on the stand. The judge basically tried to tell Jerry Sandusky, don't let Alan Myers do this because it might hurt your case. And Jerry naively still thought that the Alan Myers that he had mentored for all those years was never going to be able to get up there and as a former Marine, lie on the stand and claim that he was a victim when he really wasn't. But that's exactly what happened. I was in the courtroom that day, and when Jerry Sandusky got up on the stand, he was asked one question. Did you ever sexually abuse Alan Myers? And Jerry Sandusky, with tears rolling down his face, said, absolutely not. And that was it. Can I I ask a question of you? Please. This is me. Okay. So, and, and maybe this falls back on Joe Amendola, but I would, I would have thought, and, and, I, and again, I don't know how you would go about this in the legal sense, but as you mentioned Jerry Sandusky's asexuality, 
Why didn't Joe Amendola pursue that more? Why didn't Joe Amendola I have asked Joe, that? I've asked Joe Amendola about that, and of all the many, many conversations he and I have had <clears throat> over the last several years, it's the only subject he will not address. He gave me some bullshit about attorney-client privilege. I'm like, Joe, you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> we are so far beyond attorney-client privilege. Uh, and the only way I could interpret it, Josh, having gotten to know Joe pretty well, uh, is that Joe feels a great... think of it? I think he got... No, I think what happened was I think that the medical records fell through the cracks in the middle of the firestorm. And I think Joe is... I think Joe is embarrassed. I think he feels uh, responsible. I think he... I, I think... I think Joe has even tried to convince himself that Jerry might be guilty of something just so... That he could he can ease his own conscience. Ease his own conscience. Exactly. Uh, yes. I mean, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I liked Joe. I don't like him anymore because of the way he's handled the most recent situation. But I have defended Joe many, many times. I think that um, that there is a, ch- a very good chance, and I'm not saying this in a conspiratorial fashion. Uh, although many people would have no problem believing this in this case, but I'm not a conspiracy person. I think that there's a reasonable chance that Joe was effectively compromised. And what I mean by that is that I think that uh, Joe realized in the middle of this firestorm that Jerry's goose is cooked and that it was basically every man for himself. And I think the prosecution, either directly or indirectly, let Joe know, hey, you know, this um, this is not going to be good for your career if you fight this too hard. Because you're gonna you're gonna be public enemy number one. I mean, you're 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 trying to tell the world that uh, Jerry Sandusky is an innocent man, which Joe did say and try, and did do. But his his defense was even as an overwhelmed person with a with a co counsel. I don't know if you know this. His co counsel no is no longer even a lawyer and was put in jail for fraud soon after the trial. I mean, uh, Kurt Rominger is his name, uh, Carl Rominger, and he was just awful. Uh, and I think actually sold Jerry down the road by leaking the Matt Sandusky tape in the middle of in the middle of the trial. But I think that effectively, I think Joe, for whatever reason, realized, you know what? There's nothing I can do for Jerry. I'm just going to give him, uh, you know, the the minimum defense here in a way that will not destroy me for all time. Not realizing that it didn't matter because he was still destroyed for all time. Because there was no getting out of it at that point. You, you know yeah. what's really interesting about this is, wasn't Snedden involved in Michael Jackson's case? No. Uh, I believe you're talking about uh, Jim Clemente, uh, who... Mm, I'm, I'm reading... It was uh, Thomas Snedden. I think you're, I, you might have... Oh, different... yeah, no, 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 excuse me. Okay, that's Santa Barbara District Attorney. Yeah. Okay, what I was looking at it's was a different with Michael Sned. Jackson. This is John Yeah, Sned. different Snedden. Okay, uh, yeah, I was just looking over that because, you you, you know, Amendola kind of got buried in this case, and it, it brought back to my mind when Michael Jackson was faced with these charges, and he hired a pretty, a pretty ample uh, uh, legal team to defend him and eventually be acquitted. By so what made me curious about this is, you know, why didn't Amendola put up? I mean, Michael Jackson was. Lit- do you think uh, it had something to do with the time? 
Like my, we, well, we there was there was no more time. There was about this now than we were then. Well, I think the timing of this played a huge role because it came right after the Catholic Church scandal, and everyone thought that this was already perfectly cast. You got Paterno as the Pope, and the administrators as the Cardinals, and Jerry as the pedophile priest, and the Penn State fans or the Catholic parishioners turning the other way. None of that was true, but that in the media's mind, it was perfectly cast. Uh, so I think that played a role. You, you mentioned Michael Jackson. I have gotten to know Thomas Mesereau pretty well. In fact, I've convinced Thomas Mesereau, I believe, and he's written an op-ed to this effect, that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Uh, but, but it's interesting that, you know, Jerry didn't think he needed a dream team. See, an innocent man, Josh, I, I have learned, and I, because I've done this in many ways, not just legally, I have found that people who are actually innocent are far more difficult to defend against certain uh, certain charges because they don't think they need to do anything extraordinary. O.J. Simpson goes out and hires the Dream Team, right? Because he knows he's guilty as fuck. And, and he's, he attacked and, every and, single piece of evidence. Right, because he, he had no because he had no choice. Because, yep. because he's done. Because he knows he killed the two people. Jerry, being the naive naif, who's lived this charmed life in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania, thinks this is all just a big misunderstanding. Uh, I'm going to keep Joe, my buddy, uh, who my friend uh, Bruce Heim recommended, uh, local yokel here in, in, in State College, and uh, I don't need anything else. I don't need to destroy. And, I, I, and the worst part, the worst decision was, I don't need to destroy these accusers because he thought none of them would ever be able to get up on the stand and do this. He really thought that. Can I, can I ask a question of you? And I'm, I'm curious Please. how this would have played out. If he, if he had gone after the accusers individually, like you said, attacked them, attacked their story, attacked their credibility, pointed out all these discrepancies that you're bringing up. Okay, set the conviction or non-conviction aside for a second. I, I'm just curious in the public sphere. Do you think that would have gone over? Because I, I think this all plays. No, it would not have. But you know why it would not have gone over is because we're, there's this missing piece of this equation that we've only really touched on and not uh, talked about in great deal, a great deal. Because to, to me, it's by far the most important thing that happened in this case, and that is Joe Paterno was fired in the most public way possible a week after becoming the winningest coach in the history of college football in the minds of a hundred percent of the public especially those who were going to be on this jury that meant effectively that Penn State was pleading guilty on behalf of Jerry Sandusky that's and see I was never one of those people I looked at the Joe Paterno thing as a culmination of a couple things. One, he didn't need that job any longer. Like Sam well, Duffy, you're totally missing. From a different era <laughs> you're totally missing. Look, you're, you're totally. I'm telling you, there's absolutely <laughs> no doubt that that everyone thought there's no way Penn State fires the great Joe Paterno unless he had done something really wrong. And if he did something really wrong with regard to Jerry Sandusky, that means Sandusky is guilty, and his own family, Paterno's own family, becomes invested in Jerry Sandusky's guilt because of that, specifically Scott Paterno, Joe Paterno's son and lawyer in this case. And I have done extensive work. I know Jay was pretty vocal about things as well. Well, I will tell you, Josh, that Jay Paterno, his son who actually coached football with Jerry, knows that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. 
knows it, but was afraid to say it. He's on the board of trustees now. There are other current and former members of the Penn State Board of Trustees that I could name right now who know Jerry Sandusky is innocent. They just fear saying it because the toxicity of this case is so unprecedented. To the Mike McQueary thing. This is where, and I'm not saying that I don't think McQueary would have done something, but we're talking about reasonable people making what should be logical and rational choices. Why would, and I understand, I guess asking why is a stupid question. We both know why. But if you're somebody like Frank O'Harris, where really, what do you have left to do? What are they going to do? Take away your bust in the NFL Hall of Fame? Are they going to take away the replay of your famous cat? No, they're not going to do any of that. Well, he's got statues. He's got statues they could take down. They they took down Joe Paterno's statue. If you really believe somebody's innocent, and this is is something I believe with my moral fiber. Right. You need to go out there and say something. Why are you not saying something? Well, hold on a second. Uh, See, I'm glad you brought this up, Josh. And taking Franco out of this because Franco's been better than anybody else. He's, yeah, uh, but, he was but, just an example. Okay, but but let but but this is a huge issue. Trust me, this is a huge issue in my life. I've thought about this almost every night for the last several years. Okay, and what I have come to to believe is that something has fundamentally changed in this country. That for individuals now. No one is willing to take a risk for what they think is right. No one with anything to lose. Now, people with very little to lose, you know, people like you and me who are not famous, not rich, you know, I don't have as much to lose. I, I, have, I had some to lose, and I did lose, but I didn't have as much to lose as like a Franco Harris. But nobody, nobody who is in a position of esteem in, a, in society is going to take the risk to lose it all over defending somebody else simply because it's the right thing. That country does not exist anymore. There's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. But I, by the way, I think we're going to find, this is an aside, but because of this experience, I am completely convinced that that Robert Mueller could have a a tape of of Donald Trump colluding with the Russians. And it it would, nothing, nothing would happen because, because nobody in a position to do anything about it. Interviewed all 235 house Republicans. Joseph Amash of Michigan was the only person who said, if Donald, if there's massive evidence against Donald Trump, I will vote for impeachment. Process that. Right. I got it. Okay. So, but my point, it's an, it's an analogy that, which I think is relevant here that we're not living in an era of courage, okay? And and I could name many, many names that might even surprise some people as to who I strongly believe uh, knows that Jerry Sandusky is innocent but will not say anything. And, uh, and, and there's nothing about the way this case has evolved that does anything but lead me to that very obvious conclusion. And frankly, Josh, it's not even close. And I guess the question I want to ask you is, you know, I know that you and a lot of other people are very convinced by the sheer magnitude of the numbers involved, right? The 36 guys who got paid by Penn State. Of course, I always say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Every single one of them made out like bandits in this, uh, and, and you only know the names of a couple of them. So they, they yeah, suffered. That's they, problematic They They paid out people, and I have no idea. You have no out. idea. So they, they, paid, they, they had no risk, no suffering, no stigma, nothing. They just got paid. They didn't even have to testify. They didn't have to give a deposition, many of them. 
They just had to hire the right lawyer. Okay, that's all they had to do. And I've that that honestly does bother me. It I've, should. I've had a huge problem with that. That Penn State paid out on no evidence, no testimony. They just if they had a lawyer, well, let's get this settled. And right. it was even I believe in your thing. The guy said wherever I could, I settled. Right. I mean, it was the no, Penn, Penn State, State trustee. Now they admitted it. They Ira yeah. Ira Lupert it acknowledged yeah. it. We have an interview with him saying he he knows. He, he said they lined up for what he described he, as the gravy train. Right. He said the gravy train. He said they. I believe many of them exaggerated, and, and most extraordinarily, <laughs> when asked to provide evidence for why he thinks Jerry is guilty, the only thing he could come up with was the the plea bargains by Curley and Schultz, which were forced by a polluted jury pool, and the fact that Graham Spanier wouldn't have been convicted if Jerry was innocent, which is just bizarre in my mind because, and this is my question to you, this goes directly to where I was going next. What's your explanation for 36 alleged accusers and no actual evidence? Ten years. Ten hugely problematic. Ten years. Ten years of investigation. Massive people knocked down in second mile. I imagine they probably talked to people at Penn State, right? Uh, as well, um, huge and, investigations. And, huge. Ten years of investigation. Massive media I, I coverage. I want to say this too because I, I think that it's big when you talk about this. The lack of any pornography, child pornography on Jerry Sandusky. <laughs> it's thing. unprecedented. That's a huge red flag. It's unprecedented. That's a huge red flag. But it's not just lack of porn. The, the, the pornography alone, and, and I have asked many times, and we we, we found a criminologist, uh, Ralph Cipriano did, who worked with me on the, the Newsweek piece, which got blown up at the last second, which people can find at framingpaterno.com. Uh, but one criminologist told us that they have never heard, never heard of a pedophile who did not have pornography and didn't confess. But those two things right there, at least after conviction, these guys always confess. But he- I can't think of a single person busted. I mean, look at the amount of porn that was on Jared of Subway's computer. Right. Jared, Larry Nasser. Uh, had porn. There are so many differences, but it's not just the pornography. You've mentioned uh, Harvey Weinstein a few times. Yeah. Okay. Um, Now, granted, it's, you know, male and female adult uh, sexual allegations versus male on teenage boy. Uh, But, but I think there's, there's enough similarities to to make uh, a comparison here. Not only did Weinstein's wife leave him immediately, uh, which Dottie Sandusky has done the opposite of. By the way, what's your explanation for Dottie Sandusky sticking by him? What's your explanation? Uh, you, you know, honestly, and this isn't going to fly, but honestly, I just believe that at a certain point, people from that era, that Dottie wasn't going anywhere. Like, even, even Are if you kidding me, case, Josh? Josh. It's not going to fly. It's not a good excuse. It's, Josh. Like I said, it, it, it's not like it's not, it's not. It, but I've gotten to know Dottie exceedingly well. We don't even like each other. I've been on the I mean, I've been on the Today Show with her in an interview with Matt Lauer. I've been in the foxhole with her. I there there's absolutely no she has to be by the way an accomplice. She's not just in denial. She has to be an accomplice because of the nature of the allegations. Uh, and she is completely one hundred percent positive that he's innocent. And most importantly, she knows all of the key accusers. She knows them. This is because of the nature of the of the allegations. She's in a unique position. 
because she knew them all. This isn't like Jerry got accused of murdering some stranger and she believes that he's innocent. No, 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 no. These are people she all knew like a mother. So you got to explain, Dottie. But Harvey Weinstein's wife leaves him immediately, just like Larry Nassar's wife leaves him immediately. But you know what else existed with Harvey Weinstein? Non-disclosure agreements and payoffs. NDAs are a huge thing. And there where, were no where, NDAs. Where are the payoffs? Where, where, not only were there no payoffs, like there were in the Hastert case, the Dennis Hastert case, which was man-on-boy man sex, although I think that was gay-on-gay gay sex, uh, but he was a, a wrestling coach and uh, in high school, and he, he, where he had a massive payoff. Where, where's the, the person even asking Jerry for a payoff? It doesn't exist. So not only doesn't he pay anybody off, he doesn't get asked for a payout. No non-disclosure agreements. Nothing. That's yeah, not and- possible. With for did this for forty years. And again, no, it comes back to me wondering why people like Sue, people like Dottie, and I know Joe spoke up a little bit. And Joe was dealing with with cancer at the time, too. So I don't know that he was really. That's another element of the perfect storm. Joe Paterno was one of the few people that could have stopped this this train wreck. And he was in no position to do it because he was almost dead. And that's you have these confluence of events that just it leaves so many gaping holes. And and what's what's your explanation? I I, I feel more informed about the situation having read your piece. Has it changed my mind completely? I don't know. But you've definitely won someone over to, to ideas and, and definitely points of contention that you put forward, especially with, with Alan Myers and so on and so forth. I just – I come back to why were there not enough people to defend this man? And I because know Because cowardice. Because of cowardice. Do you not understand the toxicity I, of this? If we're going to say that these people were cowardly enough not to come to the defense of a man, how can we not also say, just putting it out there, that Mike McQueary was cowardly enough not to, not to stand up and say something? Be, if you first of all, it's man, different. But second of, all, second of all, there would be evidence. True, true. There, and, and, and I acknowledge that. But... When you have, I mean, I really honestly thought at the time when this Sandusky thing that was happening, I honestly thought, okay, we're going to get a major name, one or two that are going to come forward and, and at least make this a case. Because at the time, it was like you said, it was a bulldozer. Gary Sandusky was going down. There really wasn't anything anybody could do to stop it. And I still expected one or two people of, of, of esteem to come to this man's defense because there were at least one or two people who had nothing to lose. Like who? I mean, I'll give you... Sue, Hold on a second. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. The last thing that that Sue and Joe Paterno were going to do after he just got fired 
for uh, and had his whole legacy destroyed was to come out and defend uh, full-throatedly Jerry Sandusky because their family strategy through Scott was to separate themselves as far from Jerry as possible thinking that they could if they could get far enough away from the nuclear bomb that eventually the toxicity would dissipate and and his legacy would survive that was where do you come down on Joe's moral fiber I'm curious you know, I am. Um, I don't think as as highly of Joe Paterno today as I did when I got involved with this, which is rather ironic since I'm now positive he was totally innocent. But I I actually think that Joe's biggest mistake in all this, he he made a couple mistakes. Number one was he should have retired sooner. Uh, that was clear. Uh, he was not physically capable of still doing the job in the modern era. Uh, in 2010, 2011. And if he had retired, none of this had happened. His, his, ne- his next biggest mistake was believing his son, Scott. And having and I believe he allowed Scott to be his lawyer on this case because he didn't think there was anything to this. It was similar to Jerry's naive day. He's like, ah, whatever, Scott, you handle it. And I think that uh, turned out to be a big mistake. And then I think he, he trusted too much in Mike McQuarrie. I think that Joe Paterno did not remember at all what Mike McQuarrie had told him 10 years earlier, but he trusted Mike McQuarrie enough that Mike was had to be telling the truth 10 years later and that therefore he must have somehow forgotten that Mike told him that he had seen Jerry in a sexual situation with a boy. And that greatly confused him, which is why, if you look carefully at Joe Paterno's statements on this, they are not consistent either. He told the police just before his grand jury testimony nothing about sex. His first story, Joe Paterno's, was about horseplay, which is completely consistent with Gary Schultz and Tim Curley. And then the prosecutor in the grand jury manipulates him into saying of a sexual nature, and now they got him. And then once they get him on a sexual nature, his son, I think, uh, puts that in the concrete and they interview him again just a couple weeks before they arrest Jerry Sandusky because I think they're terrified that if they arrest Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno says, I don't remember what Mike told him, told me, then the whole case is done because Joe's the most respected man in the modern history of the state. And so they, they nail... Uh, honest question. Does this play a part in it? Because you mentioned that Dottie has this impeccable memory. And what I Sue, find Sue does. Dottie's memory is not Sue, as good. Sue, excuse me, excuse me. Sue Paterno... That's who I meant to say. Superterno has this impeccable memory. And usually what I find in these cases is that when one person has the impeccable memory, it's because the other person can't remember a damn thing. And in this particular case, if Joe Paterno had tried to come off of his own recollection, not only would he have proven that he really doesn't remember this, but that he wasn't in any position to coach. Well, Do you think ding, that ding, ding, a, ding, a, ding, 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 ding. I think that that insecurity, the, because he was insecure about having uh, the faculties to be the head coach, he didn't want to admit that he didn't remember what the hell Mike told him. I think that that played a role in this. And that was that's understandable. It's human. Uh, he was in a very, very difficult position. I think he thought he was trying to do the right thing. I think it's also important to remember he was a, a strong Republican, uh, which means he's law and order, pro-prosecution. His son is telling him, we got to get ahead of this. We need to separate ourselves from Jerry. We can't inf- interfere with this investigation. And I think that that all led them to, effectively, for Joe to give the prosecution just enough 
of what they needed. I I maintain to this day. What is it? Do you do you remember the count that the jury was it was it unanimous verdict on what? Uh, on uh, the, well, I know that there were forty five of right. There, there were three. Charges. There were three acquittals. One was ironically enough on the McQuarrie episode. Yeah. Um, but just to finish my prior point, I, I believe that if Joe Paterno had told the grand jury the 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 hundred percent truth, which is I don't remember what Mike told me. Uh, that I, I don't even think Jerry Sandusky ever gets arrested. I really, I truly believe that. Uh, and that, I, that just bugs me because, and maybe it's my estimation of Joe Paterno as this guy who's set down a legacy, tried to implant roots. Jerry Sandusky's a guy that's been in the trenches with you. But, it, but pe- people forget, for though. For, hold on a second. People forget Joe and Jerry were not close at all. They had major problems. And Jerry had been out of the program for 10 years. So, so I think that, that there's a possible, I think in the, if this had all happened immediately, Jerry would, Joe would have had in his mind, fresh in his mind, all these positive memories of Jerry, right? I mean, he, he was carried off the field in their last game at the Alamo Bowl in, in 1999. So I think that would have greatly influenced, wait a minute, this isn't possible. But 10 years go by and people think, well, shit crap do i even know jerry anymore is it possible he evolved into this or you know whatever and i think that plays there's so many elements of the perfect storm here and i think the timing of it plays a big one so let me so josh look so josh so so it sounds like i i'm pretty close to convincing you is that a fair assessment I mean, you have me majorly interested in more facts on this case i i i have come to realize that what I thought I knew at the very least is not all true and things need to be reconsidered. Okay, so I don't think that's important. So when will you be writing an article about this? <laughs> Ain't that the question? Um, honestly, probably never because I don't have your expertise. I haven't, <laughs> you'd be the only person that I have officially talked to. And I really right. feel like putting something out. I have no problem going on a podcast and saying I've been convinced. That's no problem. Right. I do think that, that what led to a lot of this was people writing articles without having talked to anyone. Correct. Isn't that what was it that your major contention? Yes. People don't know what the hell they're talking about. And they just bought into a narrative like a five-year-old does with Santa Claus. And they, they, they came to the belief that, that uh, best suited their self-interest. All right, so let me make a deal with you then. So I want you to – will you agree that um, when you tweet out a link to this podcast uh, tonight that you will acknowledge that uh, your position on this has dramatically shifted since our debate? Yeah, since that's our not debate? a problem, man. I, I honestly I, – like I said when we agreed to this, I thought if nothing else, it was an opportunity for you to have a logical discussion with somebody who, even if they had illogical beliefs, I, I probably represent a good faction of people, don't I? Sure. No, you absolutely. Know? And, no. And these I, are the people we need to convince if, if that's what you're going for. I get it. Well, Josh, I appreciate your time. And, um, and you know, you deserve a lot of credit for having the guts to come on to debate something that you know that you don't know as much about as the person you're debating and you, have, and you deserve even more credit for acknowledging that, that uh, you might be wrong. And I very much, very likely might be right. So I, I appreciate all that. And uh, let's keep in touch. Okay. Yeah, please, John. I, I thank you for the opportunity to come on here and at least put forth the case. All right. That's uh, Josh Webb Thompson. You can uh, find him on Twitter. He's a writer for Athlon sports. And uh, I'm going to say he's uh, at least 90% convinced which is pretty good.
So, so one down, you know, 299 million more to go on this never-ending quest. Um, all right, that'll do it for hour number two of this edition of the podcast. Make sure you check out our website, framingpaterno.com, for more details on the real truth of this entire saga. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.